I wrote this during the week and didn't look at it again until about an hour or two ago when I realised it was too long and slashed it really fast. So we're going to roll with it and see how it runs. It's called Ballad of the Brave. We were born courageous. We came in claiming the blaze of our braveness completely, unapologetically. We came in roaring charge toward the fullness of our lives with all the light we are, all the tenderness and fearlessness of one who hasn't forgotten who she is and how to live. We looked life in the eye and said, call me Carlisi. I'm yours. Dance me. Show me the fullness of myself. We were dragon tamers and at times dragon slayers. We held nothing back. We were unguarded, open-hearted. We let life in to live us, and we were alive for it. We took risks. Courage was cellular. We knew we couldn't serve life and our fear, so we put stocks and shares in the right places. We invested in our life force. Mess wasn't something to be afraid of. We knew it was sacred process. So we gave life all of us. And if it was time, we let life bring us to our knees. We knew it couldn't bury us because we are seeds. We let life rearrange us, grow us, unravel and rewild us, connect us to our deepest heart's path. We stayed alive here. And here's a secret. No one will give you permission to live. You give it to yourself. <laughs> it's just in the bedroom. Don't you see? You were never an apology. Don't let yourself be taught to sleepwalk without dreams. Your heart is vast enough to dance with asteroids and stars. You are full, weightless gravity. We were born brave. We've not forgotten this. It's just been buried under all the useless things we let ourselves believe. We were taught to unlearn the truth of us, but it's here for the claiming. We can rise from the underworld back to the living, and our gifts are only more potent for the journey. We are one with the force that made the cosmos. Courage was yours from the start. My love, dance, sing your song, sing it loud, unabashed, unadorned. There's only one of you walking the earth's surface. Sing as if your life depends on it, cause it does. And this world needs the bounty of your beautiful, blazing heart. So I grew up in a place much like once were warriors. It was not Otara, but it was Fairfield and Hamilton. And in my street, there was state houses with graffiti on the outside, bombed out cars in the yard, smashed windows and plastic bags because we couldn't afford to fix the windows. We had often no food. 
happens, we had to go for a couple of days. We often had to sell the furniture to do things like buy knit treatment. But I was happy that I didn't have to get my head shaved like the other kids. We lived in a place with a huge amount of violence and a huge amount of hope. In my house, mum had bipolar. It was just her and I. She had me when she was 20. The whole 18 years I lived there, it was just the two of us. She had bipolar, so inside the house there was a lot of violence, a lot of chaos and madness. And outside of the house, there was also a lot of gangs and a lot of violence. When I was eight, and I looked like this, <laughs> which didn't help. My friends used to say, you're blacker on the inside than we are. But I didn't look like that on the outside, so I was a sitting duck in so many ways. When I was eight, uh, a man broke into our house, and his task to get into a gang was to rape mum in front of me. They used to have these challenges in order to get into the toughest gangs, and we were sitting ducks because it was mum and I, and they knew there was no man. So I couldn't sleep that night. I was used to break-ins. We had bars on all the windows, locks on the inside of doors, so if they broke into the kitchen while we were sleeping, we could lock ourselves in the bedroom. They couldn't get to us, but they could ransack the house. I was accustomed to burglaries. But this time, I just couldn't sleep. And I came out into the hallway. I was eight years old in my little nighty, And I saw him there with his tomato steak stick wrapped around mum. And she was crying, and he had the bag. And I remember thinking, there's no money in there. <laughs> and I knew that I'd had to call the police. Mum had always said, when that happens, call the police. So I ran into her bedroom. I hid under the ironing board and I rang the police and he came in, he didn't see me there, threw her on the bed, started beating her up and she could see me and she was looking right in my eyes and I had the police on the line and she said, please don't hurt my baby, that's all she said and of course he turned to where her gaze was, came toward me, grabbed the phone, heard the police and he ran. I got an award for bravery at eight and the police took me into the police station and they gave me six books, new books. A little girl with op shop undies had her new books. I was thrilled. They lined up and they serenaded me with the police dogs. But I had to go back there and I didn't belong there. Tom Petty once said he felt like he was dropped off like an alien in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of somewhere he didn't belong. And I felt that all my life, all my childhood. And life went on like that for 18 years. To be honest, I didn't really know what rape was then. A week after he attempted rape with mum, he raped someone else. He actually managed it. We knew who he was, but we couldn't tell. We couldn't, we couldn't dob. Because if we did, the, the repercussions were dire. An 11-year-old boy across the street had told on someone for stealing a car uh, maybe three months earlier and had been beaten up and left for dead by the Waikato River. Didn't die, but he got shipped out and sent away. So he managed to rape someone, this man, and he ended up in jail. I stayed there for 18 years till I was 18. The burglaries that were hardest for me weren't those ones, they were actually the ones where they would break in and just smash my toys to pieces and leave them there. I didn't have many toys anyway. Or they'd shit on the bed and leave that there. So just over the years, your sense of self 
your sense of tallness, your sense of belonging, your sense of okayness was degraded down. And yet I still had this light inside. I was like this little Labrador puppy. Still am like that. People often didn't understand it. I remember standing in front of a willow tree at school, looking at my left thumb. It'd been a really hard time. And I couldn't tell my friends about all this stuff because they just didn't understand it. I went to a fancier school. My mum walked me all the way there so I didn't have to go to the rough school. I never talked about it. But I looked at my thumb and I looked at the tree and I said to myself, I think I was about nine, it's okay, Lucy, because you can build your own life. And when you build your own life, that future that will be yours, this thumb will be in it. So you have a piece of your future with you right now, the future that's going to be good, that you're going to make for yourself. And over the years, I used to hold my thumb. I still do it, even though I'm already in that future. So much happened, but I'm going to skip ahead really fast because nine minutes isn't long. I ended up going to university. I got a B bursary from the shittest school in New Zealand, and I somehow got into the best university for journalism in New Zealand at the time. 1,200 people applied the year I applied, and 120 got in. I shouldn't have. It was grace. It wasn't because I had amazing results. I had a B. But I wrote them a huge letter and I told them all about my heart. I told them how resilient I was. I told them how passionate I was. I did the degree. On the first day of university, I had no idea how to turn a computer on. I was pressing the screen, looking at everyone around me, tapping away. And the girl next to me said, psst, there's a hard drive. Press the button. And I went, okay. And the whole four years went like that. I had to work two jobs. I had no idea what I was doing. I felt like I had to climb Everest just to keep up, just to turn on the fucking computer. But I somehow did it. I did it. And we all got spat out, and none of us could get jobs in journalism. But I managed to get the editor of One News's phone number. And I rang him every day for two weeks. Give me a job. Give me a job. There's no jobs, Lucy. Leave me alone. Give me a job. Give me a job. He wouldn't. In the end, I said to him, imagine if I'm this persistent with getting a job, what I'll be like with a story. And he said, okay, come on in. And he gave me the job. I was at One News for two years. I was on the telly. I felt fancy. The little girl in her op shop knickers finally had some seeing, finally felt like I could stand tall. Problem was, I hated it. I hated capitalizing on people's grief. I hated that we were there to sell advertising, not change the world like my naive young heart wanted. I knew what poverty and suffering was, and I wanted to change something. It was a day when the editor said to me, you're going to interview a woman who's lost her husband and her three children in a car accident. Get tears on camera. That was the only grief. Make her brief. Make her cry. And I felt so uncomfortable, but I went and I did it. I said, what are the plans you had that you don't have? And she cried. I came away and I quit. I said, there's no way I can do this for the rest of my life. And everybody said I was nuts. This is the job of dreams. But I walked. There was only two of us in that year that were junior reporters. The other one is now a news anchor. The courage it took me to leave a life that other people thought of as successful was immense. But 
over my life I've been asked to follow the truth of me. Will you listen to the truth of your knowing or will you follow what life tells you as a yardstick for success? So I left. I'm going to go really fast now, but I ended up going to Europe for 15 years and working for the UN, Save the Children UK, Fair Trade in Dublin, and going to some of the biggest disaster zones in the world, working in orphanages. I went toward human suffering, mainly because I was suffering so deeply myself. I had severe PTSD from all of the trauma in childhood, and I went to a psychotherapist and got some good, good healing work done for all that. After a time, I ended up coming back to New Zealand, and I got extremely ill, extremely ill. I finally stopped. I was bedridden for six months. I had to teach myself to walk again. Nobody knew what was wrong with me. This went on for a few years. It was isolating again. Again, I couldn't fit into the community that I was in. I had so much hopes for being home. But I slowly recovered, and I ended up heading up the marketing, PR, and communications team at Oxfam New Zealand, taking reporters here over to, over to Cyclones, things like that. In the end, I had a baby, and everything I'd worked for came crashing down. The darkness came in so deeply for me. I'd always been pretty optimistic and pretty bright. For two and a half years, I couldn't remember who I was. I was new here to Waiheke. It felt more like Alcatraz than paradise. I had no friends. This baby with reflux that didn't sleep. For the first time in my life, despite all the suffering of childhood, the illness, all the things I'd been through, motherhood brought me to my knees. I didn't think I would live through that. I didn't want to. And one day when she was two and a half, the light poured in for no reason. I still don't know why. And when the light comes, it spares nothing. So once again, I was asked, what's the truth of you now? As you transform through this motherhood journey into who you are now, is this your home? Is this your husband? Is this your career? And the answer, the truest answer was no. And I had to leave. 17 years with this beautiful man and a home we'd worked for and a career I'd worked for for 15. But if I had stayed, the price would have been too high. I would have had to abandon myself. He was my brother, not my lover. And that was right. And that was beautiful. But I had to go. Courage to me, oh, and now I live a life that's completely different. I've been asked to meet the truth of me over and over again. Will you have the courage to live as the truth of your being, no matter what falls away? Courage to me is the heartfelt willingness to be true to our deepest knowing. So often we spend so long being terrified of our power. We keep ourselves small. We listen to what culture tells us, Bosses tell us, parents tell us, lovers tell us about who we should be and what would make us happy. We write scripts for ourselves and force ourselves to follow it. But courage to me is listening to our heart's whispers and living that in the world. Carl Young said, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. We are invited to rise. Mary Oliver, the beautiful poet, and I'm just about finished. <laughs> Try and shut a poet up. 
said, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? To which Rumi, another amazing poet, has a great answer. He says, let yourself be silently drawn by the strange pull of what you truly love. It will not lead you astray. I'm so grateful for this new life I had the courage to carve out. And for the first time, I am truly, truly me in all my fullness, and I would never go back.